The following is a message by Pastor Caleb Bunch of Redeeming Grace Fellowship. For more information about RGF, please visit our website at www.rgf.church. Please feel free to make copies of this sermon or distribute to friends and family, but please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way. The aim of this session is to focus on two very simple practical questions. First, how do we pray scripturally? And second, how do we pray scripture? But before we begin, allow me to ask my friend, Pastor Jim Capo, to pray the Lord's blessing over the proclamation of the word. Amen. Well, praying scripturally, that is the subject matter for our first point this morning. What do I mean when I say praying scripturally? I mean by that, praying in the manner that is displayed and prescribed for us or commanded to us by the scripture itself. We need to know exactly what God desires from us and expects from us if we're going to do this rightly. So let me ask you a question, and I I welcome everybody's answer. Just simply raise your hand. What are some examples of prayer that we see throughout the Bible? Occasions where people prayed in different places or for different reasons throughout scripture. Yeah, Jesus does pray at the Sermon on the Mount, that's right. Where else do we see prayer? He also preaches about prayer, is that what you're talking about? Where he talks about not being like the Pharisees who think they're heard for their many words, right? I, I'm seeing, I need a hand because I can't figure out the sound right there. Jesus does pray from the cross, that's absolutely true. In the garden, he prays John 17 extensively for us and for the disciples. And tell me how they're, who, who they're praying. They're praying. Uh, by the grace of God, we're going to be going through the book of Acts here at our church starting not tomorrow, but the week from tomorrow. And one of the exciting things about it is you will see that every time the church gathers, the church is filled with prayer. There is a constant dedication to prayer in the body of Christ. So that's definitely, that's definitely one that we see present. I saw a hand back in there somewhere. Nobody? Let's... She took yours? Mm. Bummer. Uh, let's think of some Old Testament examples. What are some occasions we see prayer in the Old Testament? Yeah. Praise in the name of the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and then he declares all the good things about God and calls down fire from heaven, and God answers him. Hannah's prayer in Samuel. Yeah. she. I mean, that's a prayer born out of a lot of sorrow. That she's a very different circumstance. She's She's been persecuted. She's been treated poorly by this other wife who's angry and mean towards her. And she's calling out to God so much that literally the guy thinks she's drunk. Yeah, different kind of prayer. And God, of course, opens the womb. I saw a hand over here. Yeah. Say it again. Psalm 51. We're actually going to talk about that a little bit today. I saw another hand. Yeah. The Psalms are, yeah, 150 different prayers. Yeah. Yeah, in the book of Job, uh, we see his conversation with God is very, uh, God approaches him. I, but I think there is a lot of evidence. Uh, if you want to know a lot about Job, uh, my friend Charlie Moore, one of the elders at North Shore Baptist Church, uh, he's preaching through Job right now, and you could learn a great deal. I've been listening to his sermons. They're phenomenal. And if you would like to know more about Job and the way that he interacted with God, uh, that's a great resource for you today. What's another way? Yeah. Yeah, we see that Jabez prayed that God would expand his borders. And God answers in the affirmative. Daniel, man, a man of prayer. 
I, I, I think one of the most interesting forms of prayer is in chapter, is it, is it nine where he prays the prayer of confession for the people? Yeah. Henry, you had one? Abraham prays that God would not destroy the city where his nephew Lot is living. And God, it's this very interesting exchange, right? But God, if there's only 50, 40, 30, you know, and God is gracious through that entire process, but God still continues, as we see, to fulfill his purposes. Yep. Literally, I mean, you can pray from anywhere. <laughs> this guy's in being digested. And because he is connected to the Lord, he is able to pray, even from the belly of a fish. I saw one more hand. Rob, was that you? Nope, nobody. All right. Jake, was that you? I saw it somewhere. What's that? Moses interceding for the people of Israel when God is angry with them and he says, don't wipe them out from the face of the earth. Right, there's, we could go on and on and on. There is example after example after example. And the reason is because your Bible is a book filled with prayer. From the Old Testament through the New Testament, everybody who is a person of God is found engaging in prayer. One of my absolute favorite books in the Old Testament that is kind of a low-key, incredible example of prayer is the entire book of Nehemiah. This man is a man of prayer. And one of my favorite examples is when he goes into the king to ask for the king to give him the ability to take all of the Jewish people back to Judah. What does he do? He goes into the king and he says, please allow me to have this. And then it says, and he prayed. What does that look like? Well, it didn't like him, look like him getting down on his face. It didn't look like Daniel opening the window. It looks like him silently praying in his own head, in his own heart. Most of the time that happens in the Bible, you don't see it because it's taking place in their head and in their heart. But these people are, are men and women of prayer. And what I want to encourage you to see is that there are examples all throughout Scripture of where we can pray from on mountains in caves like David or, or in the belly of a whale like Jonah or like it says in your bed or on the road or everywhere you're supposed to be praying. But we also see far more significant than the question of where and when is a question of how. And your Bible is bursting with these examples of faithful prayers that we can learn from. And although I wish we had time to consider every one of them and every type of prayer that was mentioned before and even beyond those, we just simply don't have the time to do that this morning. So as we walk through a couple of the texts that we look at this morning, we are going to consider only two, just two specific types of prayer that I believe are often overlooked in the Christian life that I believe that we need to grow in and understand and have more fervency in these specific two types of prayer. And as we do that, we are going to interlace it with what it looks like to actually pray the Scripture, to pray the Bible to the Lord. The practice of praying through a text of Scripture is truly one of the most beneficial forms of prayer in my life. It keeps me on target. It gives me something that I know is from God, that I can be processing through my mind and my heart, but also calling out for God to change those things rightly in accordance with the Scripture. It moves my times of Bible merely from some kind of an academic place of, of study to a place of genuine worship, which is a problem for me, I must admit. I can be very quick to sit in my, my little cubicle downstairs in the office and click on my light. It's like the sun. If you guys haven't seen it, go turn it on. It's like a heat lamp. And then open my Bible and just sit there for a long period of time, just learning information, but not learning God, not getting close to him. And when I pray through the scripture, it means I can't treat this as just some kind of a textbook. 
It's from God to me, for me, for my benefit. So as I pray through it and apply it to my life in that way, I am meditating upon the person and work of God, and he is working through me. So as I read from him, I speak it back to him. So Lord willing, we'll walk away from this session more equipped to engage God in our times of personal worship and family worship. So how do you pray through a passage of Scripture? One simple way is to remember the three R's that were developed by a guy named Ben Patterson. When you read the Bible, your response to it should be to rejoice, repent, and request. Very simple. We rejoice in the person and the work of God. We rejoice in the action God has taken on behalf of his people. We rejoice because of the character of God. We rejoice because we see what is happening is truly good. And then, when we see what we are called to do and how we are not measuring up, or how Christ is far superior and more holy than we are, then we respond saying, I must repent. And then we request. And of course, that has a myriad of applications depending on the text can request that God would make you more holy as he is holy. You can request that God would give you the needs that you have, the practical things, the day-to-day, give us this day our daily bread as we'll learn about in our next session. You can pray for whatever it is that the text is speaking to because God desires for us to pray for those cares and necessities and needs. So here we go. We're going to begin with our first, uh, our first point where we pray against temptation. And we're going to learn about this prayer against or as a defense against temptation in such a way that we will have an understanding of how we are called to do it. And then we will walk through a passage of scripture together praying against temptation in our churches and in our lives. So we'll begin. Jesus told his disciples in Luke chapter 22 verse 40, pray that you may not enter into temptation. Wow. Pray that or so that you will not Enter into or succumb to temptation. That's how you fight temptation? Man, for a long time, I think I did it wrong. This was the night that Jesus was betrayed. The disciples are exhausted. Jesus is now shepherding them and carrying them. He knows that a particular form of terrifying temptation is coming their way. And he is warning them that the temptation is about to arise, so you must pray. But instead of praying, what do they do? Fall asleep. You guys know this story. But what, is ha- what happens just a few verses later, a short time later, verse 26, Jesus returns to them. And what does he say? Why are you sleeping? Rise, pray that you may not enter into temptation. He repeats the same thing. Repetition always references significance. Now, you and I are bombarded with temptations every day from the evil trifecta of the world, the flesh, and the devil. And we are tempted to express our anger when we are cut off in traffic. We are tempted to gossip in order to make ourselves look better. We are tempted to make other people look worse in all forms of ways. We are tempted to lie when we think it will improve or protect our reputation. We are tempted to entertain thoughts when we are are being lustful and our attention is drawn towards the forbidden We're tempted to grumble when our car breaks down. We're tempted to keep our mouths closed when we should be sharing the gospel because we are afraid of man. You name it, we are tempted constantly. We are bombarded and barraged with temptation from every angle because temptation is everywhere you go because temptation stems from your own heart. You can't escape it. One of the interesting things you can study through church history is the idea of the monastery. Like, let's just make a society where there's no sin in these walls. Yeah, that did not work. It didn't work because as they went into those locations, they took the sin with them. It's from within, not from without. As Jesus said in Matthew 15, 20, for out of the heart 
come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. Why does all this stuff happen even when we try to create societies that avoid it? Like a monastery, or even more specifically for our case, the church. Why is there still sin within the church? It's because it comes from you, and it comes from me. Our hearts are desperately wicked. So let's face it. You sin because you like to sin. You sin because you enjoy it. Allow me to explain what happens every time you are tempted. An opportunity arises to say or to do something that you know is wrong, but that thing promises you something. It says, I'm going to make you happy. It promises you that it will give you fulfillment of some sort. It promises that your joy will be full. Promises that only Jesus can keep. But temptation is always a lie. And temptation is never fulfilling. It is never satisfactory. And left to our own strength, we are always going to fall to temptation. I'm not saying that you will fall to every temptation that comes your way. But I am saying that there is no way you can stand firm in the midst of the temptations that come to you. Even if you only fall for what we would see as lesser temptations, you are not going to choose righteousness without God himself. We are told in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 13, No temptation has overtaken you that is not common to man. God is faithful. He will not let you be tempted beyond your ability. But with the temptation, he will also provide the way of escape that you may be able to endure it. In the verse we read earlier from Luke 22, the two verses actually, we get a sense of exactly what our way of escape looks like. Our ability to endure, our ability to obey, our ability to run from temptation is directly linked to our prayer. Recently, I was here at church. Actually, even this morning this happened, but um, when I was writing this, this hadn't happened yet. I was here at the church, um, and my son Ace loves to help, and I love for him to help. This is kind of challenging, though, when we're doing things like moving tables. He loves to move those tables that are out there. Don't, I, don't, I don't understand, but I enjoy that he helps me. I want to train him. I want to teach him. So what do I do? I carry it, and I have him hold a different part of it, and he walks behind me, and I, I carry all of the weight. If I let go, it will just immediately fall and probably crush him and be very painful. But I want you to understand, even though he's not contributing anything, I delight in him taking part with me. If I let go, or if Ace tried to do this on his own, it would be impossible. The task is just too great for him. Likewise, your battle with sin, those are too great for you. You cannot bear them on your own. God is not making a legalistic declaration that you just have to work hard enough and you're eventually going to get it and that's how you're going to escape, by your own means. No. Instead, it is the way of escape from temptation to go to God himself. God is making himself our way of escape. Is that not consistent with the character of God? Prayerlessness is sinful because we are supposing that we are strong enough to live without the, the, the work of Christ in our life. That we are strong enough to live the Christian life apart from the power of the Holy Spirit. The natural human heart always wants independence. The natural human heart always wants to say, I got this. I'm strong enough. I'm the leader. I have power. I have authority. And we pursue independence. But the nature of cr- the Christian is total dependence. This is why Tim Keller says to pray is to accept that we are and always will be wholly dependent on God for everything. Anything less than that is not true prayer. One of the more abused terms in the modern Christian vocabulary is the term spiritual warfare. Prayer is often presented as some kind of offensive weapon in the hands of a Christian who is called to go fight Satan and to go kill his armies. 
But please understand that the battle belongs to the Lord. Jesus fought for us. Jesus conquers, and therefore we are more than conquerors through Christ Jesus, our Lord. He won the battle. He fought it on our behalf. Spiritual warfare is real. But prayer and every other spiritual tool that has been given to us for that matter are always presented as defensive, not offensive weapons. Let me explain. The armor of God, as an example, is given to us so that we might fight. But if you read carefully and look closely, what you will notice is that we are simply to stand firm. It's none of this, I went to the enemy's camp and took back what he stole from me business. We are not going and charging the gates of hell. Spiritual warfare does exist, but we are called simply to use the gifts that God has given us to stand firm. Temptation is a form of spiritual warfare. So we are called to pray. Earlier this week, I was speaking to my friend and my fellow pastor, Peter Nikotra. Um, Grace Baptist people, where are you? That's their pastor. I love him. I shared an office space that was very small with him for about five years. You become very close with somebody that you spend five days for five uh, a week for five years with in a room that's that that close quarters, just talking and learning. And uh, if I know anything about church planting, in large part, it's because of Peter Nicotra. And Peter Nicotra told me something just this week on the phone. He said, "Quote: It's the praying church that's going to survive the storm." Yeah. My friend Ed Moore, my mentor. In, in what it means to be a pastor. Uh, Charlie's, uh, that's Charlie's dad. Thank you for being here with us today, Charlie. Uh, Ed Moore did the marital counsel, premarital counseling for my wife and I before we got married. And he said something that I think he says to every pre- premarital counseling couple or every couple that are maybe even interested in dating each other. He tells them the same thing. He says, it is theoretically possible that there is some couple out there who prayed together faithfully and consistently every day whose marriage fell apart. But I've never encountered them. And I've never encountered them either. It's just incredible that prayer has the sustaining effect that it does on a congregation and on a couple. But this is not just true for large corporate church bodies. It's not just true for a two-person coalition of a marriage. It is also true for the individual. The person, the, the reason that it's, it, it works is that prayer lifts your eyes to heaven. And it shows you what really satisfies you. So all these things, they just grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Prayer reminds us that Christ is of infinite value. It reminds us that the filth of this world just isn't going to provide any kind of true satisfaction. It's just passing pleasure that will not satisfy you. So right now, we're simply going to pray through James chapter 1, verses 12 through 15 together. And as I pray aloud, I would ask that you silently in your own hearts, ask the Lord for this kind of grace along with me. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. Lord God, we thank you. Lord, we thank you that you have loved us and given us hope and promise of eternal life. We rejoice in your love that is evident even when trials and tests of our faith arise. And we desire that crown that you you speak of here in this text, that crown of life. And we know that there is nothing we could ever do to deserve such a gift. But we also know that the truly saved person will remain steadfast and immovable. Lord, we pray that when we are tested, that you would give us faith to stand the test. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on Jesus. Help us to love your son. And may that love abound evermore. Verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. 
For God cannot be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. Our Holy Father, we rejoice in your holiness. We stand amazed at your purity. We cannot comprehend the extent of your righteousness. For although you are all-powerful and cannot be restrained, you cannot even be tempted by evil, much less pursue it. You are repelled by evil. Lord, we thank you for your righteousness. Verse 14. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Lord, we confess that when we are tempted, it is due to our own wickedness. It is due to our own fleshly desires. We acknowledge that the only reason that sin is appealing to us is because we are not like you. We are not holy. We are not blameless. We are not pure. We confess, dear Lord, that there are daily those among us who are lured and baited by our own desires, who pursue the pleasures, the passing things of this world. And we try to delight in them, but are dissatisfied. Verse 15. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin. And when sin is fully grown, it brings forth death. Our righteous king, we ask that you would guard us from this result. Help us to walk in your ways. Give us such a hunger for you that we would not be entertaining the desires of the flesh. Give us fortitude to stand firm in the grace of Christ. Satisfy us in your Son, we pray. Amen. Amen. And that is just one quick example of praying through Scripture. You can do that literally with any passage of your Bibles. Some, although I would say are more challenging than others, all of them are are of equal value. I would say particularly if you desire to begin this, begin with the Psalms because they naturally are designed to be used in this form of prayer. But our second form of prayer that we often overlook that we want to focus on today is not just the prayer against temptation, but the prayer that becomes necessary when we actually do fall into temptation, which is the prayer of repentance, which I'm going to conclude in this confession as well. Now, what is repentance? The simple meaning of the word changes direction. It is a a turning point in your life, moving one way and then moving another. But it's not merely a change of actions. It goes much deeper than that. Genuine repentance is the changing of direction of your affections first and then actions that follow. Here's an illustration that was passed down to me from a friend. In the Iliad, there's a story of Odysseus and He's sailing across the sea, and there's this isle that has the sirens on it. Has anybody? Do you know what I'm talking about when I say these sirens? They're these incredibly wicked creatures that look like beautiful women that would lure men by their beautiful singing voices off of the boats, and then when they would get off of the boats, they would drown them and literally eat them. It is like some pretty crazy, weird Greek stuff. <laughs> but I will say, Odysseus knew this was coming. And so he told all of his people, I think he told them to put wax in their ears, but I can't remember what it is, to put wax inside of their ears so they wouldn't hear them. And they were supposed to, I think, cover their eyes so they wouldn't see them. And then he tied himself to the mast and had them knot it around him so that there was a rope holding him fast to the mast so that he could not escape no matter how much he pleaded. And I don't know why he didn't put wax in his own ears, but for some reason he doesn't do it. And then when they get close to the aisle, he hears them and he wants them and he's trying to, as much as possible, shake himself free of this thing. And he's trying to get out and he's screaming to his, his people on the boat, just untie me. But because there's wax and their eyes are covered, they can't hear and they can't see him. They're not going to do it. So he gets through safely and he survives. Well, there's another story that we find in another book uh, about Jason and the Argonauts. 
as they're pursuing the Golden Fleece. Uh, Jason traveled that same sea, but he had a different approach to what was taking place there. Jason brought along a man named Orpheus, who was known to be the most wonderful, had the most beautiful voice in the world, was the best singer in existence. So when they neared the isle where the sirens lived, Orpheus began to sing, and his voice was so delightful. It enamored Jason so much that the siren song was completely of no value to him. It was no longer alluring to him. In fact, in comparison, it was nothing more than a screeching noise to him. So I think that we often treat our prayers of repentance somewhat like Odysseus was treating this voyage through the sea. Imagine these are temptations coming your way, right? These temptations of the sirens, they're trying to allure you. And he says, I'm just not going to do that anymore. I will, I will limit myself in any way possible. Listen, he was tied to the mast, but his, his heart was with those beasts of the sea. The important thing to comprehend here is that it's not enough to just change your actions. You might stop doing one thing. You're just going to do another one. If you're not satisfied in Christ, then you're going to find satisfaction to the best of your ability with all the garbage that this world has to offer. True repentance begins by seeing the holiness of God. And as we behold God rightly, it reveals all of the impurity that's still lurking around the corners of our own hearts. James Boyce describes the, the issue this way in an article entitled Repenting Always. He says, I think the real problem is that we have forgotten that we are actually real sinners. We know we have been sinners and we rejoice that God has saved us from our sin through the atoning death of Christ. But now we suppose somehow that we are living on a higher level and that we easily slip into the conviction that we are continuing to live on that high level by, by our own efforts. He's right. Why is it that we don't pray prayers of genuine repentance? Because we don't see our actual sins as actual sins. Is your life marked by repentance? Do you find yourself confessing actual specific things to the Lord? Now, I'm not going to go deep into that because in the next session, Mike is going to deal with some of these things. But I want you to understand that a New Testament believer should grieve over their sin. Imagine for just a moment that I'm out with my family and uh, we go get ice cream. We do this sometimes in the summer. There's a Ralph's lemon ice place by my house. And we'll just stop and we'll eat it. And sometimes we'll go outside and we'll sit outside and it's hot and wonderful and joyful summer weather. And, you know, if I, if I go out there and I have my, I don't know, mint chocolate chip Italian ice and it falls off of the, the cone into the dirt, I'm going to be a little disappointed. I'm not going to be super upset, but I'll be a little sad. You know, I probably won't get another one. Don't want to spend the money, but I'm going to look at it longingly for a moment, and then I'm going to move on. But if this same thing were to happen with my son Athanasius' cotton candy swirl ice cream, and it falls into the dirt, there's going to be rivers of tears. Deep sorrow. Why is this going to happen? Because he loves it, and he desires it, and he has grief that now it's gone, that something is filthy that should be not filthy. Our lack of grief over sin stems from a lack of recognition that God himself is holy and a lack of understanding that, that God's plan is truly what is good for our lives. And when we don't feel like we've lost much when we sin or when we, what we would maybe call mess up or make a mistake here or there, we, we treat it like that because we don't see the immense value of living rightly for God. We don't see the immense honor it is to see his holiness we don't see the great privilege it is that we will get to live forever sinless before the throne 
But our sin should be offensive to us. It should be putrid to us because it has kept us from enjoying God himself. It has lied to us and it's given us nothing in return. Paul speaks about the kind of godly grief that we're called to have in 2 Corinthians chapter 7, verse 10, when he says, For godly grief produces repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Listen to the words of David when he called out in repentance to the Lord. He was broken. He was distraught. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions, and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. David was not merely sorry that he got caught. He was not merely sad because of the consequences. He had lived for quite some time with this sin in his life, and he was totally seemingly fine with it for that time. But then there was evidence before him that his sin was still there. Every day, Bathsheba's belly is growing. It's getting bigger. There's evidence of his sin right there. His general is still dead. They probably had a funeral for him. Can you imagine David attending that funeral? Sin is right in his face, but he doesn't seem to penetrate his heart on any level until a friend and a godly man points his finger in the face and says, you are the man. And then David is completely distraught. And he realized that it was not Bathsheba that was the primary target of his sin. And it was not Uriah. It was God himself. Against you and you alone have I sinned. Do we see that our sin is actually a form of attack against the God who loved us and sent his son for us? When was the last time that you sinned? Like, really, seriously, like this morning, many times. If you have kids trying to get them here this morning, many times. I'm telling you, our sin is early and often. But when was the last time that you really got on your knees and you prayed a prayer of repentance before the Lord? When is the last time you looked at the pattern of your life and said, this is unacceptable to God and this is putrid and disgusting to me and truly got on your face before God and said, please break me of this sin. Thank you, Lord, for your love and for your kindness and your grace and your mercy that is in Christ. But please wipe this out of my life. I desire to follow you and honor you and live for you. Now, you might be asking, what does all this have to do with prayer? Brokenness, sinfulness. It has everything to do with prayer because I would argue without prayer, there is no repentance. Now, here's the good news. If we confess our sin, he is faithful and just to forgive our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. I'd like to share with you just a very brief example from my life of when this took root. And I really, I think probably is one of the more extreme examples of repentance that I've experienced. But I want to tell you at the outset, I'm not telling you this because I am some kind of a beacon to, to follow. This is an example of my failures and my sin. When I was growing up, I grew up in Kansas. Uh, I had some inner ear problems and some ear infections and things like that. And at one point, this, this is fresh in my mind because this year I've been having some of the same issues recurring. At some point uh, in my left ear, I had an infection that was very bad in my inner ear and it resulted in a lot of hearing loss and I couldn't hear out of my left ear for a period of time. And after a while, the hearing actually came back in my ear, but I didn't tell anybody. In fact, I continued to lie to people about the fact that I was deaf. Now, this sounds funny, it's stupid. Why would anybody, like of all the things you could lie about, there's no ad advantage here. I just did. And for some reason, as a junior high student, I, I played this up a bit. And I think, 
I probably used it for sympathy on some cases, and I wouldn't put a headphone in my left ear, and I would walk around without it, and I lived that way for a long period of time. And every time I would go to a new group of people, the lie followed me there, and I would tell the same story to the same to the next group of people. That happened in college, that happened when I went to be a missionary in Brazil, that happened when I went to be a missionary in Italy, and it wasn't until after a long period of time of being in Italy, after being in school, and after staying there for a period of time, serving at a church plant, and then going down to Rome where I was trying to learn the language, expecting to be there as a missionary long term, I was in this place, the Militarezza della Savezza, the Salvation Army of, of Rome, living in their building, talking every day with a Roman Catholic priest when God convicted me of sin as I was trying to convince this guy that sin is a big deal. And he convinced me that, do you realize that you're lying to everyone that you talk to about the fact that you're deaf in your left ear? Like, how stupid is that? That you would lie to everyone, that you are covering the truth. Why would I do that? Because I'm a sinner. And I didn't want people to know my sin. I never wanted to admit the fact that I had lied. I had covered the truth, that I had brought something. I covered it over, and so I just carried it on and carried it on and carried it on to my great shame. And when that, I was reading through that Sermon on the Mount, and as I was reading what a disciple looks like, I was broken. Like I hadn't killed somebody like David, but I felt like it. I, I did. I, I was like weeping, and like I, I couldn't get over the fact that I had loved all these people. I said that I loved them and lied to their face. Like it was no big deal. And God was just drawing all of these years of memories of lies that I had made out of me. And over the course of the next several days, I read through the Sermon on the Mount probably 50 times and just read through it and read through it and felt convicted more deeply each time as I saw the glorious nature of God's holiness and the great depths of my own sinfulness in this stupid, silly, nonsensical way. All sin is like that. No sin is sensible. Nothing is advantageous. There is nothing that we pursue that is actually of any value to you. It's all just as dumb as trying to tell people, hey, I'm deaf in my left ear so I can get some pseudo-sympathy from you. But what did I have to do? First, I had to be broken. I had to realize that God hates that sin. And I must also hate that sin. Now, there's nothing specific dealing with that kind of issue in the Sermon on the Mount. There's a lot of other passages that speak about lying more clearly than that, than that passage does. But for some reason, God used that to reveal sin to me in my own heart. And when that came to pass, I had to just be on my face before God. I had to call out to him and recognize his grace is enough, but that I wanted this gone. And I knew that my sin had been permeating the relationships that I had with literally almost everyone I had ever met. So I knew that because I had sinned so broadly, my repentance needed to be very broad as well. So I went to a little, uh, I don't know what you would call it, it's like an internet cafe. I don't even know if these things still exist because people have cell phones now. And I I went to the internet cafe. I literally called my parents and I told them, which might have been the most difficult. I emailed my siblings next, which was also very difficult because most of them are not saved. And then I emailed every person in my inbox, one after another after another, saying, Please forgive me. And those who were saved rapidly did. Those who knew Christ were so quick to forgive. Why do I tell you this story? Honestly, I didn't mean to give this much detail. I tell you this because I want you to know that I've seen very little of that brokenness in my own life and in the life of most people in the churches I've lived with since that time and before that time. And it's not to say, wow, I actually 
did something great, is to say that I think we should get this a lot more often. I think there's a lot of lifestyle sins. There's a lot of things we pursue and that we just accept and we just do them because we've always done them. And we're not convicted because we're not looking closely at Christ. We're not really looking at God's holiness and righteousness and we're not seeing him for who he is. So that when we come before him, we just seem to think it's okay to just keep doing things the way we have been. I just want to tell you that the more clearly you see Christ in the word of God, the more rapidly you're going to run to the cross in prayer. You're going to run to the cross, declaring your desperate need for his forgiveness and for your growth. And in light of this, I want to just pray through Psalm 32. I, I, I don't know if I had ever really paid attention to Psalm 32 before this year when we were teaching through the Psalms in my home Bible study on Tuesday nights. And when we arrived at Psalm 32, I was struck by this because I didn't realize that this is the aftermath Psalm of Psalm 51. This is what David says some period of time, probably shortly afterwards, after God has forgiven him for repenting. And he replies to God's love and gracious forgiveness in chapter 32 this way. We're going to read it, and then we're going to pray through it, just like we did before. It says this, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. Let's pray. Our gracious God, we join with David in acknowledging the manifold blessings that you have given us by covering our sins, by separating them from us as far as the east is from the west, by declaring us righteous because you have given us your son's righteousness. We cherish your mercy, for we have been undeserving recipients of it. We confess, God, that we are not worthy of your love. We have transgressed, we have sinned, and we thank you, Father, that because of your son's death, burial, and resurrection, we are washed whiter than snow. Even though David did not know the method of his justification, even though he didn't know the way in which you would cover his sin, even though he didn't know that it was the cross, he knew your character and he knew your grace. And now on this side of the cross, I pray that you would make us ever more aware of just how precious the gift of forgiveness truly is. That you would sacrifice your own son in our place, we rejoice, O Lord, in that forgiveness. Verse 3. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as the heat of the summer. Heavenly Father, I thank you that you convict us of sin. I am so thankful that you do not allow your children to wallow in sin unchecked. I pray, God, that you would bring further conviction into our hearts. Into all who are gathered here, I pray that you would help us to respond with rapid repentance. Give us a holy uncomfortability with our sin. Let those who are caught in lifestyle sins or addictions or patterns of disobedience, may they experience the heavy hand that David is describing here, knowing that your discipline is on them because you love them. Knowing that those that belong to you are chastened by you. Verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. God, I thank you for the immediate nature of your forgiveness. I thank you that you remove our guilt and our shame. I thank you that anyone in this room right now who is struggling to confess their sin, I ask that they would see your kindness and that they would be quick to repent before you. God, in particular, I pray right now for Christians who have been trapped in sin, that they are 
fearful to confess or have had no desire or interest in confessing for many years. I pray that you would break that status quo and that you would bring them to a point of immediate repentance. Give them that, the ability to come to your cross. And Lord, as we will learn about later in Mike's lesson, that you would help them to learn how to pray through this even more rightly. But God, I also want to pray for those who are in the room who don't know you. God, I don't know the, the heart of every person here. I don't, I don't actually have the ability to truly know the heart of any person here. Lord, I don't know who knows you and belongs to you and those who don't. So, Father, I pray for those who have come here that don't know Christ in a saving way. I pray that they also would see their sin as an offense before you and that they would see the great need to repent before holy God. And I pray they would see the cross of Jesus Christ and they would run to it and see that there is grace to be found where there is no deserving nature to have it. I pray, Lord, that those who don't know you in this room would be convicted of sin and be convinced of your mercy and they would run to the cross and be saved by the love of Jesus Christ. Verse 6. Therefore, let everyone who is godly offer prayer to you at the time when you might be found. Indeed, O Lord, we pray that you would cause each one of us to be more faithful in all forms of prayer. But specifically, I pray, God, you would give us greater sensitivity to our own sin so that we might run for grace in prayer each day, that we would pray to you to fight temptation, and that when we do fall, we would pray to you quickly and rapidly so that we might be forgiven. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.